entering the Freedom Hut. Are Democrats helping illegals exploit immigration loopholes? Also, you've got another federal judge who's decided to overrule the executive branch because they're legislating from the bench. We'll talk about that. And also, ending the Afghanistan war is difficult. Should we be meeting with the Taliban? Has the president made the right call here? We've got that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start the show off with some some good news. But, of course, we're talking about politics and what's going on in the country, so it's always going to be somewhat mixed. But we do have some good news to speak of, and good news at the border, no less. It will be mixed with some not-so-good news. But let's start with what's good. The numbers are in, and uh, according to CBP Commissioner Mark Morgan, Immigration authorities apprehended 64,000 people at the southwest border in August. Now, that's a drop for three months running. A huge drop from May, a 60% decrease from May, when you had over 130,000 who were apprehended at our southern border. And this is the result of a few things. One is that it seems President Trump's threat to shut down trade at our southern border with Mexico and to uh, do what he can to get some improved compliance from our Mexican counterparts and trying to stop all these caravans, these uh, con- this continued infiltration through Mexico of predominantly but not entirely Central American illegal aliens in the United States. Uh, The Mexican government has deployed soldiers to its border with uh, Central American countries. And that may have had, it seems to have had a real effect here. It seems to have mattered. Um, There's another thing that the administration has done, and that is the remain in Mexico policy. Uh, I'm sorry, and it was tariffs, by the way, with the southern border that the president was really talking about, putting tariffs. At one point, he said he was going to shut it down, but then it moved on to tariffs. The Remain in Mexico policy. Well, this is interesting. What is the Remain in Mexico policy? It's really just the implementation of what is called a safe third country agreement. Safe third country. And by the way, this is all all going to make a lot of sense. It's going to be very important in a second. There's a reason why I'm getting into this. Of course, the Democrats oppose this. Showing us who they are, showing us that we've been right about them all along, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But a, a safe third country agreement means that while somebody is waiting for their asylum claim to be adjudicated, because we do, in fact, have a, uh, a process for this. It's not just, oh, I want asylum, so I get asylum. This isn't, this isn't shopping for milk in the grocery store. You don't just take it and leave. But while you're waiting for that to be adjudicated, you're supposed to 
be able to or we're supposed to believe that you will show up for your hearings and then abide by whatever is decided by the system. Problem for these Central American migrants, which we have known from the beginning, which I have been telling you from the beginning, is that 90 percent plus of them will not get asylum. So why were they all showing up at the southern border saying they want asylum? Well, because based on the Flores Settlement Agreement from 1997 that says that you can't hold a minor more than 20 days, unaccompanied minors who show up at the southern border get transferred into uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, actually, under HHS, and they're given to adult relatives or an adult guardian of some kind. So they get into the country easily. But then adults that bring a minor with them, because, again, Flores, 20 days, you you have to release them rapidly. That means they're obviously not going to get in front of a judge in that time. So they're let into the interior of the United States. Never to be seen again in a court or if they are seen in a court, never to be seen again when it's time for them to get uh, sent home after they've had their judicial process. Deportation comes after that judicial process and guess what they don't show up for that and we don't have the political will in this country to enforce the laws and the books and say no you're not really allowed to just stay in the country because you want to so the safe third country agreement or rather the remain in mexico policy that we have tells people that show up at the border who cross illegally surrender so they're not waiting at a port of entry they're breaking the law then they surrender they say they want asylum the trump administration says, no, no, now you have to wait in Mexico. And when it's time for you to have your hearing, then you show up at the border, present yourself, and and what a shock to nobody. All of a sudden, the numbers are dropping. Wait a second. I thought that people from Central America were fleeing murderous thugs and gangsters. I, I thought they were fleeing for their lives. I thought they needed asylum. This wasn't just a backdoor way to skip through the immigration process. Oh, but you mean when you have to wait in Mexico for your hearing and therefore don't just get released to establish yourself and do whatever you want to do in the United States with a handshake agreement, you're going to show up for a hearing later. All of a sudden, a lot less people are showing up at the border. It's almost like all along this was about pretending that they were going to go through the asylum process when really they just wanted to get you know, waved into the country, knowing that there would be no enforcement afterwards and that the Democrats would stop any enforcement efforts every step of the way. Oh, but then what have we seen? This is the this is where things get more mixed. That This is the good story, down 64 to 64,000. I, I know that it's the summertime. You're going to expect fewer crossings then just because of the heat and the Uh, The environmental factors that make a crossing more difficult, uh, more dangerous. But keep in mind, they're generally not these uh, surrenders are not occurring in the remote areas of the border. They're showing up at well patrolled areas of the border that in places like the Tijuana San Diego separation, that fence line where you're going from one urban area to another. You just show up and say, all right, I want to claim asylum. So. I don't know how much the weather really is impacting those. It's the people that are going out into the desert and trying to evade Border Patrol entirely. That's where you'd be more concerned, I think, about uh, the weather. But we should have what would be a, a win across the board here. 
now you have a more orderly immigration process for uh, for asylum seekers from Central America. They still get their day in court. They still get their due process, but they don't just get to come into America and then we ask politely that they will show up when it's time for their hearing. They get to stay in Mexico until the hearing happens. And guess what? Democrats hate this. In fact, there's a story in the Washington Examiner uh, that that makes a very explosive claim that there have been some members of the uh, of a House com- uh, House staff, House Oversight Committee staff, uh, looking at what's going on at our southern border and deciding that they would have some staffers who would interview and even try. This is Congresswoman Escobar's team, I believe, has, quote, sought interviews with 6,000 people who were returned last month, according to uh, CBP officials. The union learned from intelligence unit within CBP that those doing the interviews are wearing recording devices. They went through and interviewed everybody, cherry picked them, brought them back, and now are using them as taglines. They're going over there and manufacturing a lot of these issues. This is all according to Customs and Border Patrol. This is a U.S. Congresswoman's office is going down there and trying to tell people how to get through the system. This is this was published in the Washington, Washington Examiner. Quote, by opposing a system that assists migrants and speeds wait times, these individuals are exposing a cause that looks more like a cover for their political motivations. Any efforts to subvert and obstruct federal law enforcement operations should receive a full federal review. The piece here is the uh, Democratic Congresswoman secretly sending staff into Mexico to coach asylum seekers. That's right. Democrat member of Congress has staffers going down to Mexico to tell people waiting for their day in court. Oh, here's how you can get there more quickly. Here's what you say. And now people are showing up and and, and claiming to uh, Customs and Border Patrol or Border Patrol agents. Oh, well, I I shouldn't have to wait because I have a a learning disability or I shouldn't have to wait because I don't speak Spanish and I'm stuck in Mexico, a Spanish speaking country or whatever. They're trying to help them find loopholes. That's right. This is just encouraging fraud and lawlessness from Democrats because they never wanted the process to work better. They always knew what was going on here. They were completely lying about this from the start. They said, oh, we we don't want illegal immigration. We just want asylees to have their day in court. Well, now they're getting their day in court, but they just can't run the scam anymore. I told you what the scam is. The scam is you say you're going to show up in court. You don't. You're in America. You're good to go. So this clearly has had an effect. You have a huge drop in, in illegal crossings over the last few months. Some of it due to Mexican government efforts, I'm sure, but a lot more of it is just less people showing up because guess what? The loophole is a lot smaller now. It's a lot harder to pull this off. What are Democrats doing? Actively doing? Oh, that's right. Subverting this. Subverting the rule of law. And then they get an assist from a federal judge. Anyone want to guess where this federal judge is? Where is he located? It's kind of remarkable, isn't it? How many times does the Trump administration... Take action, right action, just action on immigration, only to have it overturned by some judge somewhere. Where do these judges tend to be from? Oh, that's right. A federal judge in 
California. What a surprise. Restored a nationwide injunction today that blocks the Trump administration from enforcing restrictions designed to curb asylum claims by Central Americans seeking entry into the U.S. So even when we win, folks, federal judge comes along, even when the rule of law looks like it has some glimmers of of life, glimmers of hope. All it takes is one Obama or Carter or Clinton appointee to come along and say, yeah, no, I'm in charge of federal immigration policy now, not you, not the federal government, not President Trump, not the White House, not the executive branch. Just one lowly federal judge somewhere can decide that we can't secure our southern border. And this is where I say to you, one, we've we've seen now without question, you have the hashtag judiciary, the, the hashtag resistance judiciary, rather, working against the rule of law, which is if, if there's anything that undermines our court system, it's the lawlessness of libs in these uh, black robes sitting on judges benches. Right. That that undermines the rule of law. And now we see the truth of both what these so-called asylum seekers and the Democrats knew all along, which was that this was never really about asylum. It was always about using asylum as a pretext, as a scam to get into America illegally, to break faith and trust with the American people and just do it because people want access to our markets. They want access to our welfare benefits. They want, you know, a better economy and. Yes, they want to live in a country that actually has rule of law, unlike some of these Central American states we're talking about. But we're not going to have rule of law for very long if people can violate it with impunity, systematically, hundreds of thousands of them, with a complicit Democrat Party. That is what we face right now. Make no mistake about it. I was an undercover CIA operative. My assignment was preventing rogue states and terrorists from getting nuclear weapons. You name a hotspot, I lived it. Then Dick Cheney's chief of staff took revenge against my husband and leaked my identity. His name, Scooter Libby. Guess who pardoned him last year? I come from Ukrainian Jewish immigrants. Dad was in the Air Force. My brother almost died in Vietnam. My service was cut short when my own government betrayed me. We left Washington to raise our kids in New Mexico, one of the best places on earth. Now I'm running for Congress because we're going backwards on national security, health care, and women's rights. We need to turn our country around. Yes, the CIA really does teach us how to drive like this. You've probably heard my name. And Mr. President, I've got a few scores. Okay, yeah, we get the idea. Valerie Plame running for Congress. As a Democrat, of course, which we know all along is what she was. That was her campaign ad, her campaign launch. It's an utter absurdity full of outright lies, silly exaggerations, and make-believe badassery. I had the same driving training that she did, folks. And let me tell you, it's not nearly as impressive as she wants to pretend it is. The same, a lot of training as she did. And I would never run around doing all this like, whoa, look at me. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. And yet here we are. She's uh, 
inflating her resume, lying about Scooter Libby, uh, lying about what happened there, which is that Armitage accidentally leaked her name to a journalist and felt horrible about it and told the and told people about it right away. But the special counsel, oh, that's right, Fitzgerald. Oh, Patrick Fitzgerald, do you mean James Comey's lawyer and close friend? That guy? Yeah, he knew who leaked the name, and guess what? He decided to have a special counsel investigation to just find somebody. Democrats understand this game. We never learn our lesson, folks. They use the special counsel to just try to jam up anybody who's close to the Republicans in power with nonsense, trumped-up charges. I also like Valerie Plame there. Was, I'm the, what is it, the descendant of Ukrainian Jewish immigrants or something. Ah, okay, so we're, we're supposed to forget about the whole retweeting of the anti-Semitic uh, n- nasty article that she shared, right? Clear, some, some clear anti-Semitism. That was supposed to just get swept aside now. Journalists are all very, very much uh, invested in this narrative, though, the Valerie Plame narrative. Because they they ran this. This was the Russia collusion story of its day, my friends. This was Bush and Cheney are traitors who would out a CIA officer, as we know, not agent. We don't say agent. A CIA officer to get back at her because her husband was writing editorials in the New York Times. I mean, the story was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. And now all this, oh, I learned how to do cool driving and I'm a badass. I mean, give me a break, folks. I know some of you say, oh, you know, but 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 she's an operative, folks. I, the, the operatives sit around and drink a lot of coffee and write a lot of reports. I, I hate to be the one that actually tells you this, but this is the truth. All right. Here, here's a here's a fun fact for you. Nine out of nine out of ten operatives that I met in my day, you would rather have had Buck at your side in a bar fight or a gunfight. Trust me. OK. And that's not saying much about me like a nerd society uh anyway valerie Plame, giant fraud nasty person and democrat hero though and the media loves her at least they did we'll see if she can resurrect herself here they're dead they're dead as far as i'm concerned they're dead they thought that they had to kill people in order to put themselves in a little better negotiating position when they did that they killed 12 people one happened to be a great american soldier a wonderful young man from Puerto Rico, families from Puerto Rico. And you can't do that. You can't do that with me. So they're dead as far as I'm concerned. And we've hit the Taliban harder in the last four days than they've been hitting over 10 years. So that's the way it is. President Trump has shut down the planned talks with the Taliban in, uh, at Camp David. They're going to meet with Taliban leadership at Camp David. This was going to be done in secret, but came out over the weekend. The president said, no more, not going to happen after there was a a large terror attack by the Taliban. Uh, And I think that was the right move. Now, I'm just going to say this to you because I always tell you what I really think. Uh, I think it was a mistake. I think it was a mistake for President Trump to have ever invited the Taliban to Camp David. Yeah, I know people say, what about Arafat bucket? Okay, that's a, it's a different situation at a different time. Just because that was done then doesn't mean this should be done now. And by the way, I'm, I'd be open to maybe Arafat shouldn't have been invited to Camp David. Didn't work, by the way. Uh, but here we have a situation 
where our enemy in active hostilities is being invited to a place that I think is generally reserved for more civilized discussions with a more civilized enemy. Uh, the Taliban is a disgrace. It is a, a terrorist organization. Um, we, I don't have to go through all the things that it does that offend the conscience of any decent human being. Uh, they kill women and children on purpose. They mutilate, they torture, um, they engage in the worst kinds of battlefield atrocities. And now we're supposed to think that President Trump should invite them to Camp David. Uh, look, I, I think that Trump on the main issue here is correct, which is end this war. End this war. Just, we need to stop. I, I don't know what it's going to take to get some. It's fellow conservatives in many cases that disagree with me on this, but no more. And people who say that, uh, l- let me work through a few of the, the objections here. They say, well, Buck, if we, if we don't leave a presence there, then it will be used again as a platform for mass casualty attacks. I can tell you this. If the Taliban decides that they're seizing territory and then they're going to use that as training camp areas and and areas for plotting and all that for al-Qaeda, then I think that they should understand that the first time, it doesn't have to be on a 9-11 scale either, the first time that there is an attack planned off of Afghan soil, I mean, we're going in and uh, there's just going to be a carpet bombing campaign and we're just going to lay waste to places. And I know right now that might sound a little bit, oh my gosh, Buck, but what about the, uh, we're, we're done with this. We're done with this. You know, at some point, we are going to have to fight wars the way wars used to be fought, which is break the other side until they submit. That's what you got to do. We fight wars very differently now because we are a just and honorable and kind society. Uh, But if the Taliban plots another or allows, I should say, and is complicit in another mass casualty terror attack against Americans, or against our interests, you know, working with Al-Qaeda, any, any external terrorist plotting like that that gets after us or our people, uh, we, the, the plan should be to lay absolute waste to whatever they're in control of. I mean, it would be what we did before, except this time around, there would be very little mercy. So we can just tell them, we make this very clear. You guys, they learned the hard way the first time. It's worth noting. They were not expecting us to do what we did after 9-11. They did not think that we would have special forces on the ground in a matter of, of weeks and that we would, with our air, air power, just turn the tide of war against them. And that was not the expectation. And I think that that did rattle them. Uh, but this time around, it wouldn't just be that. So that's one part of this. Now, I, that's not a perfect solution, but I think that that's real. Um, keep in mind that there are also plenty of places, unfortunately, far too many places around the world where jihadists already have the ability to plot, train, equip. There are safe haven areas, certainly in Yemen, in Sinai Peninsula, in uh, Syria, in Iraq, in well, in Iraq, not as much, but certainly in Syria. And uh, there are places, you know, Nigeria, Somalia, places where there's external plotting going on on the global jihadist attacks being being planned. So we're not invading every place. You know, we we have this 
sense that Afghanistan is the place where all the terrorists want to plan the attacks, but they can plan attacks from inside Pakistan. They can plan attacks from inside a basement in New Jersey. They've done that. So keep that in mind as well, that the CT mission, the counterterrorism mission was accomplished a long time ago in Afghanistan. We are not really there primarily now in a, in a counterterrorism function. We are there rebuilding a country that is from a civil society infrastructure and just developmental perspective about a hundred years behind the first world. You know, Afghanistan from an infrastructure and development perspective is probably somewhere in the 1920s or 1930s. And some of you might say that's being kind, but that's the truth. We're going to rebuild this country Rebuild it into what? And then we get into, okay, well, what's acceptable when it comes to negotiation with the Taliban? This is really, this is really where this gets uh, uncomfortable, folks. The truth is, we don't have to negotiate anything with the Taliban. We can just leave. All we're doing is trying to get assurances and put in place uh, measures, tripwires, if you will, for our, for our diplomacy to make them think twice before doing what I am almost certain they are going to do, which is as soon as they think that they have a clear path, try to take over the rest of the country again. It won't be easy. There are still remnants of the old Northern Alliance and the, you know, non, the non Pashtun Northern reaches of Afghanistan would still resist that. And, you know, there's, there is an Afghan national army. There is an Afghan national police that have received a lot of training and, how much better are they now than they were then? I, you know, that's, that's a complicated discussion in and of itself. But there's no future in which we leave in Afghanistan that does not have a Taliban. And there is no future in which when we deal with the Taliban, we can be dealing with people who are honorable and who are decent. Because they're not. They're not. That's never going to change. So where does that leave us? Well, do we want to end this war or not? Do we want to stop having responsibility for holding this place together? Or are we just going to say that this is now, it's been almost 20 years. Almost 20 years of U.S. troops in this country and people who say, oh, Buck, what about Germany and South Korea and Japan? Those are stable societies. We're, we're not getting, uh, you know, suicide bombers driving into our barracks in, in uh, Japan and South Korea. This is different. This is U.S. soldiers deployed in an active combat zone, taking casualties, taking the fight to the enemy. I mean, it's good to hear that, as President Trump was pointing out, they have been fighting the Taliban even while these talks are ongoing. So we're, they're taking battlefield casualties. But here's the other part of this. Taliban doesn't care about battlefield casualties. They use young people as cannon fodder, tell them they're Mujahideen and they're, you know, they're badasses, they're tough, go out there, fight some Americans, do a suicide attack, whatever. They don't care. Life is cheap to the Taliban. They'll lose people fighting and not, not think twice about it. So that's not, we're not going to shoot our way out of, the, out of the Taliban or out of dealing with the Taliban. It's not going to happen. So... Then there became this big media frenzy, not just around the strategy and what should be done here, 
because the media would usually, you would think, be in favor of what the administration is trying to do, which is get us out of a war zone. But get us out of a war zone is a secondary consideration to the media's favorite thing to consider and think about here, which is how does this make Trump look bad? And that's why they're pushing him on who well, who called for this meeting and who canceled this meeting and how did all of it go? No, actually, in terms of advisors, I took my own advice. I like the idea of meeting. I've met with a lot of bad people and a lot of good people during the course of the last almost three years. And I think meeting is a great thing. I think that meeting with, you know, you're talking about war. There are meetings with war. Otherwise, wars would never end. You'd have them go on forever. Uh, We had a meeting scheduled. Uh, It was my idea, and it was my idea to terminate it. I didn't even, I didn't discuss it with anybody else. When I heard, very simply, that they killed one of our soldiers and 12 other innocent people, I said, there's no way I'm meeting on that basis. There's no way I'm meeting. They did a mistake. And by the way, they are telling people they made a big mistake. They're saying it loud and clear that they made a big mistake. A president made the right move here by canceling the talks, so I agree with him on that. I just think the talks never should have been scheduled for Camp David on U.S. soil in this way. I think, if anything, you know, meet them in some third-party venue in some third country, you know, maybe Europe or the Middle East, have the discussions there, but not, not invite them as guests of the administration on U.S. soil. I start to get worried. I hope Trump isn't going to do this with Kim Jong-un. I see here North Korea is also saying they're ready to resume nuclear talks with President Trump, you know, he, he does need a win here at some point, folks. I'm not saying that we have passed that. We have passed the phase where if he doesn't get a win, it's he's, he's clearly already failed. But, you know, whether it's China or North Korea or the Taliban, we, we do need some, we do need the ball to move here. It's not enough to just keep saying, well, give him time, give him time, give him time. He's got four years to make something happen to get us to another four years. And I think that right now, on you know, our, our chief negotiator, the pressure is definitely getting uh, stronger. There's more pressure now because he has not yet delivered on any of these very high-stakes negotiations. And I also think that we need to be uh, just psychologically prepared as a country for things to... If we do end the war in Afghanistan, we, do so, we should do so knowing that things may be very bad very, it might get very bad very quickly there. And that's still the choice that we're making. Otherwise, we just have troops there that are keeping this country from boiling over forever. And that should not be our role. That's not what our military should be doing. And it's not, uh, not a mission set that we should take on. Whereas press sees this all as just an opportunity to bash Trump. There's no surprise there. They see this as, oh, in the... Days leading up to 9-11, the president of the United States was going to hold a meeting at Camp David with the Taliban. It's so outrageous that he would do this. I think it was a bad move. I don't think it was an outrageous move. I think it was the wrong decision. I don't think it was a decision made for the wrong reasons. I do have this for you, though, as a thought. If the president's uh, stance on this, because look, I, I don't always agree with Trump, especially on, on some foreign policy areas, I think that He goes back and forth, right? If the president is correct, and I think he is in this regard, 
that it was the right move to shut down talks with the Taliban after they killed innocent people in a terror attack in order, in their own words, to gain more leverage for these talks, essentially to show us, see, we still can kill a dozen people at will. We still, the Taliban, can murder and maim and and cause death and destruction. So, you know, you better do what we want and take take our concerns seriously in these negotiations. That is the mentality of a group that is never going to be decent, is never going to be honorable. Why should we think that the Taliban is going to wake up in, in uh, you know, six weeks, six months, six years and be an entity that would keep its commitments, that would engage honorably in diplomacy and in negotiations? It's not going to. It's just not going to happen. So I would prefer that we all prepare for that reality. Understand the enemy that we are dealing with and what they're going to do as soon as they can. As soon as they have the opportunity, it is very likely that they're going to try to make a run on the rest of the country. There are ways we can help, but we're not helping by having our men and women in uniform, in that country, doing the fighting that Afghans should be doing. It has been almost 20 years. What do we really think is going to change this time? I was in Afghanistan a decade ago. My friends, I can tell you, I saw the highest level assessments and information in that country for the military, for the intelligence community. It just wasn't going to happen then. We cannot create a stable peaceful Afghanistan for the Afghan people. We can't and we don't want to because the cost would be too high for us. It's not our fight. And if we leave and we should, and that means that bad things happen, we need to understand that so be it. Bad things happen. We'll be right back. It's just another example of the president treating uh, foreign policy uh, like it's some kind of game show. This isn't a game show. These are terrorists. Yeah, Democrats now lecturing everybody on taking terrorism seriously. That's right. Democrats that have so many times in the past taken the position that what we are doing to fight against terrorists That's the cause of terrorism. You know, it's our fighting back against this that creates it all in the first place. Uh, But I I suppose even in these very uh, clear areas of what should be some degree of, if not bipartisan agreement, at least bipartisan respect. In the era of Trump, anything, anything goes now. Insult him on foreign policy. Insult the commander in chief. Say he's a traitor. Say he's a moron. Say he's a coward. I mean, here, here's Joe Biden getting in on it, too. Our president isn't up to this moment. We all know that. Where he lacks the moral authority to lead, this president has more in common with George Wallace than George Washington. A disgusting smear said by an idiot who will repeat whatever smear somebody else tells him to. That's all you really need to know about Joe Biden. Guy is just intellectually worthless and doesn't seem to have a backbone to speak of either. But this Horowitz thing is important. I mean, you think about what Jim Comey did. He, he's the guy solely responsible for putting the country through three years of this saga we have now lived through. Jim Comey's the guy who started the Trump-Russia investigation. Jim Comey's the guy who put Peter Strzok, 
the guy with this bias against the president, the guy who ran the Clinton investigation, he's the guy who put him in charge. Jim Comey's the guy who's responsible for the dossier being used to go get a warrant to spy on a fellow American citizen. Right. And Jim Comey's the guy who leaked the information to the New York Times through his friend to get the special counsel in the first place. So he's the guy who created this whole darn mess. And yet we're not going to bring him in after the scathing report by Michael Horowitz. We're not going to bring in the inspector general to answer questions. That's ridiculous. So they're so focused on impeachment. They're missing, I think, the important things that we should be that we should be addressing. Remember when the Russia collusion story was the most important thing in the world to about 90 percent of the media? It's important to go back and, and just take a little trip down memory lane here. It was the biggest story in the world, according to the press. The most important thing. Bestsellers were written about how Trump was a pawn of the Russians working with them to steal an election. Careers were built on this fraud, this outright fraud. And now we're supposed to just walk away from it because Democrats can't make it stick. People simply normal people, I should say. I mean, the media still believes that they can make a go of this. Normal people don't care. Normal people don't want to be put through this, don't want to listen to this, don't want to hear about how there's a new theory of, you know, Trump-Russia collusion. There's some other level of this that we haven't seen before. I, I think that one of the, the underlying premises that many people who are in the positions of authority and power in our society who hate Trump, who think that people like you and me that support Trump do so out of out of ignorance or bigotry or hatred or whatever it is. Because we're just not smart, you know, whatever it is that they say. I think they haven't figured out yet that it's never going back to what it was. We're not going back to a point in time where, oh, yeah, CNN, they're kind of a moderate down the middle journalistic enterprise, whether you believe that was ever true or not. No serious, well-informed person can believe that anymore. And no serious, well-informed person could believe that going forward. You know, is the Democratic Party really just concerned with working people and and believes in many of the same fundamental Americanisms that the rest of us do, but they just have a different a different approach to get us there? Or are they really a bunch of socialists? We all know the answer is number two. And that's never going to change. That's not we're not going back to a time before that. We're not going to a period in history when all of a sudden we're going to we're not going back to a period in history where we can have a conversation with them and we say, "Okay, we want the same thing. So let's just start from that assumption. I don't think we do want the same things as the Democratic Party. I don't want them in charge of everything in my life. I don't want them making huge decisions about winners and losers, about the trajectory of the economy, about everything, anything about how America is not really any better than any other country, and we should probably just fall in line, let the U.N. call the shots. I'm not, I'm not on board for that. I do not believe that that's a good idea. But they still think that we're going back to this other place, the pre, that pre-Trump America is just one election away, and it's not true. It's not true. I do wonder still what we're supposed to make of all that all that wasted breath, all that bull crap about impeachment that we heard from them so many times, so much of it. Where did, where did that all go? 
The Michael Cohen hearing didn't work out the way they wanted. The John Dean hearing didn't work out the way they wanted. And, of course, the Bob Mueller hearing and that investigation didn't work out the way they wanted. But that doesn't stop them. They're going to continue to push this ridiculous impeachment narrative at the, at, at the cost of it. I mean, one of the first things you learn in college economics class 101 is opportunity cost. So when they're That's focused right. on this warrantless impeachment requ- uh, inquiry, you're not getting done the things we need to be doing, like fixing the border situation, dealing with the intellectual theft of intellectual uh, property uh, theft of, of China, things we're supposed to deal with on the Judiciary Committee. And they're also not going back and saying, you know what, we were wrong. We were wrong about some of this stuff. We, we probably shouldn't have chased down these things the way that we did. But Democrats can't change who they are, I suppose. They still really believe that this is something the American people want to see. They still really believe that this is something that could be of... Well, they, I should say they haven't decided yet. Is it of political benefit to them? And that's what will make the, uh, the final determination as to whether or not there is an impeachment hearing. I think if they impeach Trump, they guarantee his reelection because it shows that this all along was fixed. Now they're saying that the reason they want to impeach him is there's a what uh, you know, it, it's a combination. And now it's the combo platter. It's the emoluments clause, the 25th Amendment, Russia collusion, racism, uh, didn't show his tax return. There's all these. Th- it's like, no, just because you don't like him doesn't mean that. He should be impeached. But that's where the Democrats are. They can't get beyond their their anti-Trump emotions. They've gone truly pathological with this stuff. Now, right now, they hold everybody in line with this one kind of piece of doctrine about abortion, right? Which is obviously a tough issue for a lot of people to think through morally. Then again, uh, you know, there's a lot of parts of the Bible that talk about how life begins with breath. And so even that is something that we can interpret differently. And uh, I'm pro-choice. Take up, uh, me too. Yeah. And, but I think no matter where you think about the, the kind of cosmic question of how life begins, most Americans can get on the board with the idea of, all right, I might draw the line here, you might draw the line there. But the most important thing is the person who should be drawing the line is the woman making the decision. Absolutely. Nope. Wrong. Ethically wrong. Morally law, Morally wrong. Uh, spiritually wrong, doctrinally wrong. I don't. I don't know how much more wrong he could get. Bringing up life begins at breath. Is he serious? That is such a a. It's a barbaric and utterly stupid. And I have been deeply unimpressed with. Mayor Pete, who went to fancy schools and has a Rhodes, was a Rhodes Scholar. I've told you, the Rhodes Scholarships are very political. And, you know, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. And people get all excited about this. It's really a lot of, a lot of nonsense. Uh, Mayor Pete has been very unimpressive to me this entire time. Um, and I just like to call him Mayor Pete, really, because I don't, I, his last name is complicated. Otherwise, I would just refer to him as Buddha Judge. It's hard to say. What he said there, though, is barbaric. And, and it's interesting that he doesn't defend the position, but he puts it out there. He kind of floats this. Well, maybe life begins at, at breath. Huh. I wonder how Mayor Pete would feel if he had, let's say, a, a great aunt who was on a respirator. Otherwise, totally fine. And somebody went and just said, you know what? Can't breathe on your own. 
Life, be, life requires breath, and you can't breathe on your own, so we're just going to pull the plug. Yeah, she's going to make a full recovery, but don't worry about that. We're going to pull the plug because life begins at breath, or life continues at breath. Anybody who believes in, in medical ethics, or just ethics, period, would have to hear what Mayor Pete said and think that this is horrific. And this is barbaric. This isn't even an area where we would have a, a good faith disagreement. We're not having an argument with Mayor Pete here about whether life begins at conception, which some would say there's a, oh, okay, well, what, what is the conception? And when, you know, there's all this, is it implantation? And people get into this. I mean, I think life, the only consistent position is that life begins at conception. But at least you could see there's a, a, a discussion to be had, maybe. To explain to the other side that life begins at conception, but I, I don't want to sit around and have a conversation about how a baby that has its own heart, its own brain, its own central nervous system, its own genetic material, its own everything, but it's just waiting to be brought out into the world is not really a baby. I, I don't know how we can have a, a an honest, good faith discussion with the other side about this, because if they won't concede this, then they're just living in a fantasy. The left has really lost its mind. We see this now. They've lost their mind on climate change. They've lost their mind on open borders. They've lost their mind on socialism. And now they've lost their mind on abortion, too. This is not in the gray area. This is not, oh, what are we going to do? How do we handle this? This is complicated. This isn't complicated at all. And it's not a moral stance to say, oh, well, it's just up to the choice of the individual involved. Should I mean, in, in ancient Rome, for example, I mean, I could I could tell you this, I, as you know, I like history in ancient Rome, the head of household, the father had the power of life and death over everybody in his household. Could kill a slave, you know, slavery was widespread throughout the Roman Empire. We, we often think of slavery in this country because of things like the New York Times uh, 1619 project. We think it's a uniquely American institution when, in fact, we fought a very large war to end slavery and were part of the revolution in world affairs uh, away from slavery, which had been the norm for societies stretching back for millennia around the globe. Obviously wrong, unethical. I mean, you know, m murder and pillaging your neighbor's uh, village was also the norm. Doesn't mean it's OK, but it just this was the way it was. And then it changed. Uh, but to say that to say that. Uh, Pope Pete here has some moral high ground is stunning. Um, and and I, I think that he must be a panderer because he can't be this intellectually inept. The things that he says when he goes to the Bible to justify his things, he loves to do this. He's obsessed with talking about Mike Pence and obsessed with the Bible says this and the Bible says that. I, I, you know, the, the Bible says some things that I'm sure Mayor Pete really doesn't like. Well, like thou shalt not kill, for example. And if we have any question about whether or not this is a real, you know, what we were told when you had that uh, the mayor who uh, not the mayor, the governor uh, Northam, who wore the black face, but of course, is still the mayor, uh, still the governor. Rather, uh, he said that they'd make an infant comfortable before they killed an infant outside the womb if the mother didn't want it. And then we, we were told, oh, no, but that's not a real thing. That's not a real concern. That doesn't really happen. No, no, it does. It does. Here's a story from the Associated Press. As mainstream a news outlet as you'll find about a woman who uh, got to be 28 
weeks pregnant without realizing that she was pregnant and then chose to go across state lines to have an abortion. This story is supposed to be a sympathetic tale of a woman who had trouble getting access to her her constitutional right to an abortion, which just I choke on the words because only a moron thinks that the Constitution gives somebody a right to an abortion. But we have to live in a moronic society because of people's choice to pervert the law and morality. But here's what uh, here's what the Associated Press uh, quotes or here's what they talk about in this piece where this woman is going to have an abortion at uh, 28 weeks into a pregnancy. What I would learn the hard way is when you first stop taking birth control, that first couple weeks, that first like few days, you're your most fertile. So I got pregnant in like early February. Um, and I wouldn't know, have the suspicion I was pregnant until about late July. I wasn't really talking to my family, so there wasn't any support there. I was feeling pretty isolated, um, pretty, pretty panicky. I was housing insecure at the time. I like I had just started a job. I didn't have any support. And so she then had to, in her mind, find a way to relieve herself of this burden, the burden of bringing life into this world. And here is what she said happened thereafter. They said that they would be able to help me, but I had to get there before I turned 28 weeks. And so I had less than 10 days. Um, and they said that my procedure would cost about $10,500. Um, so they know who's going to pick them up. It's not a decision to be made lightly because on top of, or like I didn't make it lightly um, because it was on top of a large um, emotional like turning point like decision to make in my life it was a large financial decision to make when I started to put my story out there it's then people started reaching out to me They're like oh I'm so glad you said like you're open about this because I went through something similar and I didn't I've never known anyone else this is right here what makes it worth it because if I can give back to people the one thing that I wanted more than anything when I was going through this then my work is then I'm done what I've set up to do like my work is done this is a very sad story it's very sad that she uh, chose at just shy what was it a few days shy of 28 weeks then to have an abortion uh, it's very sad that she has been convinced by leftists here in America you know, by liberals by the abortion lobby by you know NARAL and uh Planned Parenthood and all the rest that a baby that is seven months old, if you would like, and it will be a difficult thing to do, but you can Google what a seven month old baby looks like. It looks like a baby. And not only does it look like a baby, overwhelmingly babies at seven months are entirely viable outside the womb. They could do a quick cesarean section if they had to and have that baby out and breathing and crying and being a little baby with little tiny hands, little tiny feet kicking around in minutes. But she thinks that this was a moment of coming together and she received support uh, for the decision to terminate the baby's, terminate her own baby's life. 
And the Democratic Party has convinced young women across the country that this is a good thing. In fact, it is uh, something to be celebrated. It's a right to be cherished. Uh, Whenever you have your doubts about which side is morally uh, in the darkness, which side is confused, which side is fighting for the wrong things, remember this story and think about all the people that you know that you think of as conservatives, whether friends in your day-to-day life, whether you're your pastor, people that you see on TV, that you listen to on radio. Who knows that this is wrong, what this woman did, what happened here, and who doesn't? And it really is a, a, a very important uh, test. Because if someone doesn't know that this is wrong, they don't know that anything is wrong. And this society has really lost its way that we even have to have this conversation that Mayor Pete and other Democrat candidates all think that what happened here is okay. Um, there will come a time, I've said this to you before, where we will look back on the abortion regime in this country the way that people now look back on slavery as a, a horrific, immoral, inhumane uh, regime of, of terror and genocide and oppression. That will happen. I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime, but it will happen because one thing I am very sure of, science is on our side here, folks. Seven-month-old baby. We were told that this doesn't happen. Well, here the AP is telling us it does happen. Seven-month-old baby. At least you're on the right side of this one. We'll be right back. Well, I think there's no question the U.S. economy is in very good shape. If you look around the world, there's no question that China is slowing, Europe is slowing. The U.S. is the bright spot of the world. And in regards to a middle-class tax cut, you know, we'll be looking at tax cuts 2.0. Uh, it's something that will be something we'll consider next year. But right now, the economy is in very, very good shape. It was just announced that we had a record-setting jobs report for the month of August. And African-American jobs were the lowest unemployment rate in the history of our country. Likewise, Hispanic job report just came out. Lowest unemployment rate in the history of our country. The women are doing great. Asians also lowest in the history of our country. It's incredible what's happening. Our economy is strong. Our country is great. We've never been in a better position. More people are working today in the United States than at any time in the history of our country. Almost 160 million people. So to all fellow American citizens, I say one simple word. Congratulations. Sometimes I do a segment with you here on the Buck Sexton show where I feel like maybe this isn't going to be the most, this isn't the most compelling radio. It's not, it's not a new insightful idea, but I think you need to hear it. And maybe it's just, I think I need to say it too. The economy is booming. Remember, if you will, the, the narrative after Bill Clinton dragged the country through all kinds of his his personal mess, his lying under oath, and you know, all that stuff. What you would hear from, from so many Democrats was, but we were at peace and we were prosperous. And that was the that was all that you had to say. That was everything. We were at peace and we were prosperous. Whatever Bill Clinton did in the Oval Office, whoever he did it with and whatever he said about it didn't matter. This was the the story. So I just got so excited I just like whacked the microphone by accident. Hopefully it didn't make too much noise. 
Take that, microphone. It's going to cost us money, Buck. Watch out. Uh-oh. Yeah. They're going to find me. Microphone abuse. I've heard some other radio shows. I got to tell you, a lot of microphone abuse going on there, but not with anyone's hand. Uh, so, just saying. Here's the situation. The media, the media is focusing in on the most minute, nonsensical stories. In part to distract, I think, to, to prevent any coverage of the really strong economy. And also just because they can't help themselves, they think that their audiences really just want to see anti-Trump propaganda, that that's what matters. Everything else is secondary to that. And I do believe that they have convinced themselves. And not just Brad Stelter is like, I just don't understand why the president doesn't think that we're, you know, fair. I mean, we're still fair, but I also think that we need to double down and bash the president even more because he's so terrible. Ah, Okay. This is what we're heading into, though. The most important decisions about news coverage in the country leading into an election. And I don't know, you know, if you're listening to this show, you must care about the news somewhat. But the most important decisions will be what is and is not covered. That's even more powerful than how they cover things. Although, as you know, based on what we saw with Trump, you know, they always find a way to uh, make it about how he's bad. And that's why the coverage of the of Hurricane Dorian was was interesting, because it was decided before any before the first raindrops had fallen on dry land anywhere. It was decided that Trump needed to have a this needed to be used as a weapon against Trump. And that's when you Molly Hemingway, she was on I was on Fox on Sunday and Molly was on right before me. She had a great a great mini rant on this. They're completely beclowned themselves. And think about that Chiron. It says, as people die, Trump is doing this. So as people die, CNN and other media outlets are focusing on what exactly? You almost, <laughs> you almost get the feeling that the media decided at the beginning of the week they were going to make Trump's handling of the hurricane a major story. And then it turned out that the hurricane didn't make landfall in a way that was as devastating as they planned. Right, right. And so all they were left with was the map, and then they went with that anyway. At some point, you have to... You know, A, you shouldn't have just an oppositional stance as your as your approach. But if you you need to have better news judgment. I mean, I would I would like to ask any of the and, and Molly's totally right. Although I think that. This is now our expectation is that they're always they've always decided what they're going to do when it comes to Trump before he does anything. But I would like to know, does anyone hold the position? Does any serious person hold the position that CNN is not oppositional that the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, NPR, ABC News, CBS News. Does anyone hold the position that they are not oppositional to this president? I would love to have that. There's not a person in America that I would be the least bit concerned about debating on that point. In fact, I would throttle. I would shellac. I would annihilate anybody in public on that debate because it's so obvious it's so clear and yet they don't agree to it they still keep this uh this facade going of oh no though we're just covering trump as he needs to be covered i don't think so not on my watch not acceptable not true It's time!
time for a woman in the White House. They're yelling. Elizabeth Warren fans there, everybody. Time for a woman in the White House. (laughs) Uh, Can we just can we just may the best man or or woman win the race? Do do we have to segregate this contest by gender all of a sudden or or, or right at the uh, at the outset? Do we have to do that? I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather see who is good at this. I'd I'd rather see who the best option may be for the American people. But, uh, you know, identity politics is going to be very, very strong in this whole thing. And and that's not going to change. That's not going to change at all. In fact, Bernie Sanders, I mean, you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two of the, despite what Elizabeth Warren said for most of her professional life, two of the whitest human beings you will ever see anywhere. I mean, they are, you know, there is nothing but whiteness when you're talking about Warren and Sanders. And yet they're both obsessed with appealing to the, uh, the tenets of, of diversity, multiculturalism and identity politics all all put together. I mean, here, here and what's amazing is that they think that those who don't embrace that, who don't think that skin color determines political or should determine political beliefs as Democrats do that individuals of different ethnicities should not think for themselves. They should think the way that they are told to think based on their skin color as Democrats do that the people that have a problem with that. They're the, they're the ones that are dividing us up, right? The, the, the people that believe in individual thought who believe that we all should be able to think through what matters to us, what's important, what is just and what is good as human beings. We're the bad guys. Bernie Sanders, for example, he's the good guy because, you know, it's Trump who wants to divide us. I think that all the Democrats do is divide us because the things that should be uh, neutral in American life with respect to uh, with respect to race and, and gender and you know, we all want a strong economy. We all want rule of law. We all want a secure, or at least we used to, all want a secure border. Those things that it, it, it used to be that we would argue with the other side over how to get there. Now we're increasingly told, no, we want fundamentally different things. And oh, by the way, the Democrats want you to think that we want fundamentally different things based upon ethnic origin, background, skin color, etc., that there's only one acceptable belief that people of certain skin colors can have. And if you veer outside of that, you're, you know, you're a tool of the right, you're a conservative, you're a fake, you're a phony. Here's Bernie Sanders hitting the identity politics issue. Together we are going not only to win this election, but together we are going to build an unprecedented grassroots movement. Trump wants to divide us up. We're going to bring our people together, black and white, Latino, Native American, Asian American, gay and straight, immigrant, native born. I don't think that that's really what Democrats want to do. I think that they would much prefer a a coalition of different identity politics-based constituencies that they can call upon. But it's going to be very hard for them to pretend that they want unity when they will tell people, one, if you voted for Donald Trump, even if you voted for Obama once or twice before, if you vote for Donald Trump this time around, then you're clearly a racist. 
It's a very divisive and very uh, nasty thing to say, an unfair thing to say. And you look at the way that they talk about any number of, of policy initiatives. And they break it down by uh, by race. They talk about, well, you know, there, there must be a, a different focus. You know, communities of color will view this this way versus everybody else will view it that way. I always I just stumble for a moment. I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by how much that strikes me as wrong and, and often really condescending from Democrats. That is what they do. But you know what? What might actually unite us? The reality that uh, Medicare for all is a horrible idea, a terrible idea. Um, I'm going to complain to you later about my latest uh, trials and tribulations with the cable guy. And this is what the problems with moving are always the little things that turn into nightmares. And you feel like you're losing your life to little unimportant squabbles when you want to be focusing on the big stuff. Uh, but when you have no recourse, when you are only given one option for a product, and that is it, things are bad all of a sudden. You know, I, I walk into a restaurant in New York City, and if I feel like they're being rude, you know, the staff, uh, the, the maitre d' or the, that makes it sound like I go to fancy places. Oh, Buck, the maitre d' is being very rude to you. No, but, uh, you know, if you go in somewhere and you don't like it and you feel like they're being weird to you or you don't like the table, and this is true in most places now where there's at least some critical mass of population, you don't like the place, get up, leave, go find somewhere else. There's always somewhere else to eat in America. I mean, with very few exceptions, there's always somewhere else you can go. But that's a good thing because it means that when you go into a restaurant, there's a real incentive for the people in that restaurant to keep your business. This is a, this is a real thing that you see working in your own life all the time. Whether you're going into Shea Fancy Pants or Denny's, you know, the, the staff there, the individuals there, you know, is the place clean? Is it well kept? Are they being nice to you? Is it welcoming? The answer is no, you go somewhere else. And so because of that cause and effect, there's a real effort to keep you. When you have a Medicare system that is entirely, that, that becomes the, the whole system, get ready to wait forever for practitioners to start retiring early and not get replaced for government bureaucrats to tell you what services you can and can't get, how long you will wait. And that's going to be it. And unless you are, and this is what, this is what's true of so many of the libs that are pushing this, unless you are wealthy enough and part of the elite such that you will just pay out of pocket for whatever services you need, that's always going to be an option. There's always somebody that won't take any insurance who will, be able to give you and, and you, but you'll create a multi-tiered medical system you're going to have everybody that's in the government medicare program and then you're going to have people who are uh, paying out of pocket who can afford to do it and then they're going to be the ones i'm sure because it'll be a lot of libs saying oh but isn't it a great system we have i mean i'm not going to get health care in this system but isn't it a great system we have Interesting to hear a voice from the Democrat side of things who is considered a, a kind of a tough as tough as nails guy. And he was very, very tight with Obama. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of baggage, a lot of problems there. But he's not dumb. I don't think anyone has ever said that Rahm Emanuel is dumb. He's not a dumb guy. He's a sharp guy. Doesn't mean he's a good guy, but he's sharp. 
He knows that Medicare for all is for the Democrats just bonkers. Position so far, and the candidates have through the process. A few have not about on basically Medicare for all, which is we're going to eliminate 150 million people's health care, and we're going to provide health care for people that just come over the border. That is an untenable position for the general election. I, as you know, George, I just biked around Lake Michigan, nearly a thousand miles through Michigan and Wisconsin, two really important states. Nobody at a diner ran at me and said, "Take my health care away." Nobody. This is this is reckless as it relates to and you don't have to take the position to win the primary. And you're basically literally hindering yourself for the general election. It is a loser idea. It's a loser policy that the Democratic Party is, I think, so stuck in the throes of anti-Trump psychosis that they couldn't figure this out. It tells you a lot about where the modern left has really gone. I mean, it tells you about where the Democratic Party is today in this country. But this is a non-starter. And you're going to hear on Thursday at the Democratic debate, you're going to hear them talk about Medicare for all like it's not crazy. It's a horrible idea. It would be incredibly expensive and it would be very, very bad health care. And every doctor that I know Uh, that I've asked about this has said, yeah, this is, and I know a lot of, I know some lefty doctors too, but I've talked to a few, a few MDs about this and they say, yeah, this is going to be a big problem as it is. A lot of them don't want to take Medicare as it is. They don't want to deal with it. So now it, now basically 90% of the people walking their office are going to be on some kind of a Medicare program. It's not going to work. It's a something for nothing situation. And then back to my initial point about incentives, there's no incentive for anybody to give you good care. You don't matter. It'd have to be a, a systematic, catastrophic failure in the Medicare for all system for anyone to pay attention to anything. You think that if, if all of a sudden you can't get the surgery you need or you can't get the medical treatment that you need, that Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer are going to lose a night's sleep? Absolutely not. All they care about is what does it look like on the scoreboard for the Democratic Party, does everybody now have health insurance? It might be might mean that you can't get care, but if everyone's got insurance, that's a compelling story. That gets people reelected. Central planning is flawed. It fails because it has to fail. This will fail too. This will be healthcare central planning on a massive scale. It's a terrible idea. Even Democrats who know anything know it's a terrible idea. But man, get ready for Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders to battle it out on Thursday. Really worthwhile piece uh, that I would uh, recommend for all of you in the Wall Street Journal. I'll tell you about it now, though, so you can just listen to me if you don't feel like starting a journal subscription to see it. It is by uh, Robert Pondicio, and the title is The Secret of a Charter School's Success. Parents, this is a controversial topic. It shouldn't be. It's obvious. I've said to you before, I mean, the greatest advantage that I feel I've had in life is having uh, parents who were involved, who cared, who stayed married, who kept the family together and who made the family a priority. Greatest advantage I've had in life, more so than anything else. Um, And you see this in all of the research. Whenever there's an honest study done about what the, the most important factor is For example, in uh, charter school success, just to take that as a subset, it's parental involvement. That's the secret 
to the success here because the parental involvement generates greater uh, student involvement. And it means everyone's on board from the household during the commute to the school to picking them up. This was a fascinating piece because Success Academy, of which there are 50 of these uh, charter schools called Success Academy in New York City, serve 17,000 students. Over 90% of them are minorities. I mean, this Success Academy is almost entirely black and Hispanic students. And these are black and Hispanic students that come from uh, socioeconomic backgrounds that are struggling. Right. These are not wealthy people. A lot of them are on welfare. A lot of them are struggling financially. Vast majority of them would be considered low income. That was the phrase I was looking for. And their kids are kicking butt, kicking butt in math and in English in the statewide tests that are the only real metric that anybody could look at. They're doing great. Over 90 percent of the young African-American students in Success Academy are uh proficient in math over 85 percent are proficient in uh english you know in, in language arts whatever the specifics are of, of what they call it why is that the case well the way they've set up success academy and this is uh this is controversial they say oh it's controversial why is it controversial the way they set it up is that they're it's a it's a lottery system but the lottery system gets winnowed down very quickly so that if you do everything you're supposed to do you have a very good chance, about 50-50, of being able to get into a Success Academy school, but you have to show up. The parents have to show up. Parents have to pick you up. There's no after-school programs. This isn't a glorified, all-day-long babysitting program, which is what you have in a lot of these public schools. They say, oh, we need you know this and that program and this and that. Uh, you know, The kids have been in school for a long time already. To say that the expectation should be that they could be taken care of by the state until 6 or 7 o'clock at night... That's a very long day. That's asking a lot from a school district. But a lot of parents don't show up, even those who initially enter their kids into the lottery, even those who uh, seem to want a better future for their kids. They're not willing to do the basic work of show up and do what you say you're going to do. Be involved. The parents who do that, their kids overwhelmingly successful. And this just gives the lie to, oh, if only we had more money in the school system, if only we had different or better resources or you know, whatever the case may be, then everything would be better. Then everything would be fine. It's not about more money in the schools. Uh, I, I, have, I have friends here in New York City who teach in some of the most uh, well-funded public schools you can find anywhere. They have this whole school rena- uh, school renaissance program, and there's there's these have exceptional teachers, and they have brand new brand new laptops and computers in every classroom, and the classrooms are spotless. And there's but the kids show up, and they're rowdy, and they're disrespectful, and they don't want to learn, and they don't care to learn, and they're just glorified babysitting programs, where in many cases the teachers are being asked to be. In loco parentis, in place of parents. That's never going to work. Every veteran teacher I know in the school system who's not just a little automaton of the teachers' unions and, and doesn't view, it hasn't just taken all the, uh, look, because 
public schools are, are a form of socialism. It is a form of central planning. Everybody who hasn't just completely dr- drank all the Kool-Aid on how great our public school system is, if only there was more money, if only there was more money, uh, they'll tell you that you don't even really need to know much about the kid to know if they have a chance of success. It's, did the parents show up to parent-teacher night? Is there an adult, a guardian, who will pick the child up after school and who's on time after school? Oh, but no, you see, no one wants to hear this. This is not a politically popular thing to say. It's a much better narrative for the teachers in the schools to say that they just need more money, which, of course, we know goes to the adults. And there's been an explosion of non-teaching adults making all kinds of salaries, getting all kinds of benefits in the system for doing very, very little that you would consider real educating. There's been a six-fold increase of the last, I think, 10 or 15 years in, uh, you know, in, in administrative staff in these schools. And in failing schools, parents don't want to be told that they're supposed to be involved in their kids' education. They think that that's what the school does. Parents don't want to be told that they need to encourage their children to read at home They need to make sure the homework is done. They think that's what the school is for. But that's wrong. That's wrong. By the time the kid shows up and sits down in the classroom, it has already been largely decided what his or her fate is going to be. And the decision is not the states. It's not the localities. It is the home. Who is raising this child? Who's in charge of this child? What is he or she being told about his education, about respect for authority? about trying to better oneself, about trying to learn to be a good citizen, a good person. Those are the, that's really all you need. That's, those are the data points that will tell you whether or not there's a real uh, prospect of, of academic success for the student. And that's what this charter school, uh, these charter schools prove. If the parents show up and care and they're involved, the kids don't just have a shot. They do very well. But parents who think that this is a taxpayer funded babysitting program, they don't care. They're too busy. They don't want it to. They don't want to back the teacher up and say, yes, you need to learn. Yes, you need to be quiet. Uh, They are. Never going to have the results they want. And we're just going to keep being told there needs to be more money. There needs to be more money. We've been shoveling money to the Department of Education and to the public school system now for decades. Scores don't budge. Charter school, school, uh, charter school scores do. There's a reason for that. And as this guy says, parental involvement is the secret sauce. We must change almost everything in our current societies. The bigger your carbon footprint is, the bigger your moral duty. The bigger your platform, the bigger your responsibility. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel. Well, at least she's being honest. She's holding press conferences. I'm not looking for this stuff. This is a, a global climate change celebrity. And she is a child. I don't mean, oh, she's really young, like she's 24 or something. No, I mean, she's literally a child. I think she's 10, 11, 12, something like that. She is a a pre-adolescent who is 
giving lectures to major media outlets about how we need to change everything in our society. They are creating a platform for this child to tell us about one of the most complicated issues that you could ever conjure up. I mean, we, we might as well have a 12-year-old telling us all about the meaning of life and that we need to uh, you know, get, get rid of all law and possessions and just prepare for the end of days tomorrow. I mean, it's, a, it's really on the same intellectual plane as that. It is absurd beyond absurdity. And yet here we are. Media is treating it like she knows what she's talking about. But she's, in a sense, giving away the game here. She said, I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. That's what so much of the climate change hysteria is driven by. I want you to panic. Uh, They believe that it's better if people think that the world is going to end because then you'll listen to anything. I mean, what, what won't you do? If somebody tells you that, you know, your, your house is on fire and they're the only person who can put it out, you're not really going to think long and hard about, well, are you a good firefighter and uh, what's in my house and do I have fire insurance? And no, you just anything to get that problem dealt with. But this is textbook propaganda. And using a child to do it, I noticed that you have some journalists who like to do the, how dare you criticize her, she's just a child. How dare you elevate her, she's just a child. As I've said, I don't blame her. She, does, she doesn't know anything. If somebody took, and I don't think that, I know that liberals are not beyond this. This is, this is a, a, a desperation that they have psychologically. This is why you have many blue checks, and this became a joke in response to it. Many blue checks will tell you, you know, I just think that I don't know how to respond to my four-year-old when she looked at me in the eyes and said, I think that Trump's fighting against universal injunctions in the federal courts is undermining our constitutionality and destroying our democracy. Like your four-year-old didn't say that. Clearly, right? I mean, these journos that pretend this, but they believe that there's some... Uh, there's some purity, some authenticity, some some emotional uh, secret weapon that comes from a child holding certain political beliefs. I mean, I remember when I was four or five years old, I think my parents were trying to keep me from, you know, uh, picking my nose too much and making sure that, you know, every, everything that needed to went in the potty or I don't know. I don't know if that's when you're four or when you're two. I'm not good with the kids stuff, but. I know that I wasn't lecturing people on climate change, though, but I have seen uh, I have seen libs run around at gun rallies. It's not just climate change. Gun rallies, too, with their kids have big placards on. You know, I want to live. Vote against guns. Kid didn't make the placard. This is like people trotting out their babies in onesies that say, you know, vote for Elizabeth Warren because your baby has a onesie on that says so. I mean, look, people can dress their kids however they want, but. Doesn't mean that I have to take the political messaging seriously. (laughs) Oh, it's really stunning. It really is. But you have a child that's still lecturing the the whole world. It's not just the American people. She's a global. She's a global celebrity. Who knows nothing about this, but she does want you to panic. This is about panicking. This is like the the little kid from. uh, What's that M. Night Shyamalan movie? I see dead people. Remember that? What was that one called, Producer Mark? You know what I'm talking about? I forget what it's... I don't remember the name either. I don't remember the name either. But it's the one with Bruce Willis when, oh, big spoiler, he's actually the ghost. Um, 
This is like the little girl who's saying, you know, I see climate change. It's like, well, okay. So what? Meanwhile, there's somebody with childlike intelligence who's not a child at all. He's actually quite old. Who's uh, essentially parroting the same kind of rhetoric she uses. But the greatest crisis of our time is climate change. We must begin to get this under control. Ladies and gentlemen, I immediately would call for a $400 billion increase in funding for alternatives, the new science and technology that will bring us down to zero net zero emissions by 2050. And I'll immediately, immediately rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which our administration put together because the rest of the world is accountable for 85% of the problem, and we need to lead them, and there's no leadership now. Yeah, that's right. China, India, the developing world, they're really going to make themselves much poorer because of climate change. I don't think so. What they're going to do is swindle the developing world into transfer payments, which is just nationality-based redistribution of wealth, from us to them, and they can laugh all the way. And then what happens when their emissions are... Be- how, do they, how can we even measure the emissions in these countries? They don't know. They don't know. When I was in China, it is, it is really unsettling when you see the, uh, the skyline over Shanghai or the skyline over Beijing. And it has a... When the pollution is really dense and the sun is trying to break through it but can't, it does have a, a post-apocalyptic feel to it. It looks like... You're you're seeing the the horizon in a movie where people are rolling around in modified pickup trucks with like big axes and scythes and uh, things coming out of the sides, desperate to find, you know, whatever little water there is. I don't know how many of you have seen the Mad Max movies, but it, it, it feels a little bit like that. Like it's a post nuclear situation. It's and you see it and that's and it's real. But that's pollution. That's actual pollutants in the air. It's not CO2. Does anybody really think that they're going to curb all their CO2 emissions because Joe Biden tells them to? Who can believe this? Uh, But I'm prepared for even greater degrees of lunacy at the uh, Democrat debate coming up this Thursday. They're going to try and out lefty one another. Because the current uh, trend is that some of the lower level left-wing candidates are losing some support and it's going to that's right it's going to warren and it's going to bernie it's not going to biden biden's support so far seems to be what it is the uh, the democrat left-wing base the true progressives in the democratic party they're, they're not for biden and so as you have fewer candidates you'll see i think that that's a bigger percentage then certainly they're going to pretend it is when it comes time for the general election. They're going to act like, oh, they're, they're a normal party. Um, but on, on climate change, you, you just you hear them say these things. Biden says four hundred billion dollars, four hundred billion dollars of your money. He's taking money from you to spend on a make believe problem. And with that four hundred billion dollars spent, I would want to know. How many lives, for example, and, and I understand that this has now become a thing that I'm repeating for you, but I think it's important. How many lives could be saved with $400 billion spent on uh, opioid, making sure that first responders have the drug, I forget what it's called, uh, that will save somebody if they're going through an overdose? How many lives are saved from 
the uh, treatment programs that could be set up, the law enforcement efforts to eliminate this stuff from the streets. You know, there's there's a lot of mislabeling of these drugs that goes on. In fact, the cartels, as I've told you before, try to make the opioids that they are selling look like they come. They, they copy the imprints of pharmaceutical grade opioids so it looks like it's pharmaceutical grade but it's not it's just what they made in some that somewhere in the hinterlands of mexico and then people take it and it's the dosage is wrong or the chemical compound is stronger and then they die how many lives would be saved the the number of lives that would be saved by the government spending 400 billion dollars to try to transition us even faster than we are currently transitioning to green energy the number of lives saved is is zero They will save zero lives. The benefit to all of us from that spending will be nothing. It's just a lot of spending. It's like taking a lot of money, putting it in a hole in the ground and lighting it on fire. That's what Biden wants to do because climate change. So I had a victory today. A victory today after four consecutive appointments, producer Mark, four of them uh, spanning many hours. I must have spent, I think it was, I I would conservatively estimate three hours on the phone in addition, in addition to the four appointments with uh, Verizon Fios to try to get them to just install my cable and internet properly. And this morning they finally did it. They finally did it after... They, they, they had some glitch in the system where they kept listing me as part of a group outage, but I wasn't part of a group outage. So every time I'd make an appointment to get this fixed, they would cancel it out at the last second because that's how their system works. Because they think, oh, you're part of this group outage. I wasn't part of the group outage. It's, I, I was starting to turn into Jack Nicholas in The Shining, like I was losing my mind. And then I'd have to explain to somebody on the phone for 30 minutes, you know, I have to wait for 15 minutes and then get on the phone, what happened. And then they would do another appointment and then they would cancel it out again. And you, you know what the at the end of the day, do you know what my prize is for getting cable and Internet installed properly? A really expensive bill. Correct. Way, way, way more money than I should be spending on cable and Internet, of which they will waive none of the fee. They had their their uh, official Verizon Fios Twitter account keep sending me these DMs being like, we're so sorry. We know we're messing up. I'm like, first of all, you're not sorry. And second of all, you're a multi-billion dollar corporation. You know, how about free cable and Internet for a couple of months? That that would make me feel like you're sorry, but they're not sorry. I, I bring this up not just because it's very frustrating and I like to point out the frustrations of massive companies because I hate them, uh, but also because it is a little bit of a of a reminder of what happens when you have a marketplace without competition. What are really what are my options in a building that are that's wired for Verizon FiOS? Uh, what are my options in dealing with them? The option is don't have internet, which is a tough thing to do in this modern era we live in, or just deal with them. Deal with them and choke on whatever nonsense they tell you you have to choke down. By the way, the guy came today. You know what he told me? The original tech. Two weeks ago. It's taken me two weeks to get this resolved. The original tech had forgot to plug in a plug in the, you know, in the other server room or whatever down the hallway where they have the one plug. The guy just didn't do it. And, you know, you sit here and you say to yourself, what, what can I take from this? I don't get any benefit from it. Nothing good happens as a result, except there's this. Now I know what it would be like to be in a centrally planned economy and imagine everything that you were buying, every medical service, everything you were dealing with day in and day out on a consumer basis 
was like dealing with Verizon Fios. You wait, you wait, they screw up, doesn't matter, it's on you, wait more, wait around for three hours, guy doesn't show up. You know, the, the, the abuse that we have of the cable guy, which has been a long-standing thing. I mean, I, I remember this from even my youth, right? I mean, you, you know that the cable, they, they have you in their grip if you, if you want cable. And now, for I mean, Wi-Fi, you just can't function as a professional person in, in media if you don't have Wi-Fi. You just can't do it. Uh, there's no escape. There's, and there's no justice. And that's, that's my reminder of what we would all be dealing with. And I know this seems like a bit of a leap, but it's not. If you had single-payer health care, every time you went to the doctor, it would be like you're dealing with Verizon. Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's, you get through it, it's all. But when there's a problem, you are totally screwed, and there is, no, there is no way, you have no recourse, nothing. So Verizon Fios, you're terrible, slash central planning is bad. Let's do roll call. Ain't no party like a team buck party, because a team buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton plus a pending email address that we'll be able to give you for Roll Call. Right, Producer Mark? Soon, I promise. Soon. The, The request is in. The request is in. So that's what we got. Let's see what else we got here. All right. Uh, John. John writes, by the way, Saturday original squad here. I remember when uh, I missed the overseas deep dives. Still love the show. Um, yeah, man, I I wish the deep dive. I don't know. if If overseas deep dives were... More of a national crowd pleaser. I think I could do them. Uh, but people like their news of the day stuff, it seems. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm These days, I'm just trying to, trying to keep all the people happy. And sometimes you're trying to keep... When I say all the people, I mean all of Team Buck happy. And it's not an easy, not an easy go to know what is going to get that done. Brian writes, Buck, I hope people... Uh, are documenting the extreme weather events of today. According to the 12-year timeline Democrats have set, by the time people start running for president uh, for the 2024 election cycle, we should be a third of the way to absolute disaster. I wonder what that will look like, probably a lot like today. Democrats have become the new doomsday predictors. At some point, everyone just needs to admit just how ridiculous they are. Well, I'm already at that point. I am here to tell you that they are ridiculous. So there is that. I can tell you they are a ridiculoso. Kristen. Uh, well, actually, before I go to Kristen, I just say it's not possible for somebody who has not been brainwashed to watch 15 minutes or more of that climate change uh, bonanza, that extravaganza that went on uh what was it last week on cnn it's not possible to watch more than 15 minutes of that and come away from it thinking anything other than these people are nuts that's what you come away from that thinking if you're a normal person they are nuts it is true all right kristen writes uh i heard sheldon from texas's comment about paper straws 
Um, I have to wonder, is that Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory? Christian, um, womp, womp. <laughs> thanks for writing in. Karen, uh, let's see. Live. The left has no desire to do anything about the opioid problem as it plays directly into population control. Um, Liv, I don't know if that's why the left doesn't care about uh, the opioid problem as much as they should, just based on the body count, uh, just based on how many people have lost their lives. You would think there'd be a much, a much greater uh, number of journalist stories on this, just much more of a focus on it. But the opioid epidemic overwhelmingly hurts uh, people who are in rural areas or uh, outlying areas of, of cities or suburbs. And it is mostly, although not certainly not entirely, but is mostly affecting uh, the white working class community. And so that's why the media doesn't really see a, an urgent need to tell those stories. I, I think that at some level, the mainstream media believes that people who have white privilege and don't... Uh, aren't able to use that white privilege to get beyond the trials and tribulations of substance abuse. Well, that's on that's on them at some level. Right. I, I really believe that there's a bit of a cold heartedness for much of the media toward the opioid epidemic because they don't view white working class Americans as victims of anything. So there is a sense that especially in elite media corridors, New York, D.C., L.A., uh, that people that are caught up in the opioid epidemic, it's on them to deal with it and get beyond it. Uh, that there's no need to raise the alarm. So, and if you think that I'm being too harsh, just tell me why is it that you've seen so much more coverage and and fervent coverage? I mean, people a- acting like it's the apocalypse over climate change or over a- any number of issues than you do over something that is a public health crisis that has direct ties to illegal immigration, by the way, obviously enormous impact on law enforcement. Um, They don't tell these stories. They don't want the American people to focus on this because it doesn't fit into a narrative that the media likes. It's just the truth. And it's uncomfortable to think about because there are so many people who have lost their uh, lost their lives. I had two. I've mentioned this before on air. I had two very. Good friends of mine growing up here in New York City who both died of what were accidental prescription drug overdoses. Um, not, I was never told specifically what the drugs were, but there are only so many drugs that one can be prescribed that are likely candidates for a possible overdose. Uh, one happened when I was in college and one happened right after college. So, And I still, I still remember being at one of those funerals and seeing that family and hearing the father give the eulogy for his son and it was uh completely heartbreaking i still remember the sounds that he made to this day at that microphone and it it haunts me to this day so the opioid epidemic is something that you would think journalists would really want to dig into and and try to raise not just raise awareness raise public action raise public funds uh, how, and by the way, raising awareness of something that does have an individual action component is really useful. People should know that one pill, one pill can kill you. They should know that. I don't think everyone knows that. I didn't know that till a few years ago. I had assumed that if you 
were overdosing on opioids, you must have been, look, I'll just say it, you must have been an addict, you know, that it was primarily something that would affect people who were, uh, who were almost, you know, junkies. Uh, it's just not true. It affects people that take the drugs uh, because they're prescribed and then they develop dependence. And if, if people die because they take the drug one time more than they should or one time and the dosage just wasn't uh, wasn't properly, you know, properly meted out because they're doing it recreationally and they certainly shouldn't be. because It's very, very dangerous. So there's just there's a lot more to it. And yet look at how upset the libs get when they talk about climate change versus the opioid epidemic, which they they treat the opioid epidemic like it's, you know, uh, the same as dealing with traffic fatalities or something as much there should be much more urgency in this issue but all right uh let's see we have adam who writes buck on the millennials uh strangely talking all taking all the factor into account and deciding tear down the mountain instead of climate from their point of view with crushing debt and all avenues difficult if not impossible one might say i'm not playing shields high um, Adam, usually very astute, not really sure what you're going for here, but I appreciate you writing in, my friend. Maybe I'm just a little, a little distracted today. I've got, I've got a lot on my mind, which usually, the good thing about radio is that it forces you to focus on not things that are in your own personal life on your mind for the most part, but, uh, sometimes, especially for the end of the show, it can creep in like, oh, I've still got, I've still got to deal with that thing. Steven writes, best action movie is Raid 2. Check it out. Well, Steven, it sounds like something used to kill cockroaches. In fact, I believe it is something used to kill cockroaches. Producer Mark, fact check. I'm right, aren't I? Yeah, I use Raid to kill cockroaches. Exactly. So Raid 2 doesn't sound that awesome just based on that. But I suppose we could look beyond that and see what is next on the... uh, Best action movie list, perhaps. Then, uh, Buck, I personally cannot wait until the podcast is out earlier so that I'm not at the mercy of my local station. I'll also be interested in seeing the Buckman in action when you get your video stream. All that and an email address, too. Talk about safe and warm. I truly enjoyed your segment with Sean Parnell. I, too, love the Jack Reacher book series. I'll certainly have to check out Sean's books as well, Shields High. Yeah, I mean, Van, thank you for uh, your kind words about it. The thing about doing a segment with Sean is we're friends. Uh, we've been friends now for years. So it's fun when you get to do work like that with a friend. You know, when you get to sit and have a conversation, and that's part of part of what my job is here, which is just to do a show. Um, and, and Sean's just, he's such a good guy. Uh, he's, he's never, there's no false bravado in him. I mean, he was a decorated combat veteran, and he was right in, right in the stuff. And you hang out with him, you have a burger, you know, you have a drink, and you're just like, this guy is totally cool and chill and nice dude. Nice dude. And, and it, it writes great books. I mean, the Outlaw Platoon is fantastic. I, I might I might read some fiction just so I can read my buddy Sean Parnell's book. I might actually put it in the mix. I'm very, it's very rare for me to uh, do fiction. Very rare. I've done it in recent years, but it's not a usual thing. Buckman. Shields High and The Shield. I think it's fate. This is from Benny. The Shield was great, and the first show that conflicted me mentally and emotionally because I found myself rooting for Vic, even though he is clearly not a good guy, the way I expect law enforcement protagonists to be. Happy viewing. Benny in Mississippi. Um, all right. 
I mean, the shield is going to have to get. I don't know where I can watch it exactly. So I got. I got to check it out. I got to make it. Got to make it happen. Um, Kyle, do you know? I mean, it's probably a. It's on, I got to be on Hulu or Netflix. Got to be one or the other. Kyle writes, Buck. I have a ton of professional respect for General Mattis. That being said, I think the American public has a tendency to revere their generals too much because they're perceived to be different and perhaps more respectable than our politicians. But Clausewitz observed that war is just a continuation of politics by other means. So if we consider our generals to have mastered the art of war, then we shouldn't forget that by extension, many have also risen to that rank in part by mastering the art of politics. And as any adept politician knows, the perception of persona you create for others is an important component of the political process. I'm sure someone as well read as General Mattis is quite aware of that. Yes, I, you know, I, I agree with you, my friend. I, I think that, oh, Kyle, I mean, no one can ever take away, nor should they try to, the uh, really outstanding career of service to his country that General Mattis had. But that doesn't mean that he's, a, he's an emperor or god king. It doesn't mean that he can't be wrong. And it doesn't mean that sometimes perhaps he focuses a bit more on his own uh, reputation and image than one would one would expect for a a senior military figure. I mean, at, at that level, you are talking about somebody who's acting often like a poli- has to be acting like a politician. Uh, when you're somebody who's running a combatant command, when you're somebody who's uh, the Secretary of Defense, politics is a reality of your day to day life. So I, I think it's impossible to completely extricate that. That's going to be it here in the hut for today. We're getting our countdown to earlier podcasts. So please, everybody, download the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, rather, subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show on iTunes. Just go on your iTunes and type in the Buck Sexton Show. Or however you listen to podcasts, subscribe there. Because you're going to start seeing it popping into your feed by 3 Eastern within the next two weeks. It's exciting stuff. Shields high.